Welcome to Two Sides to the Story with Ted and Lori. I'm Ted Zaleski. And I'm Lori. Here's Setter. We are recording today in a different spot. We are at the Thurmont branch of the Frederick County Public Library. Uh, very nice looking place. Almost looks like a little mountain lodge when you come walking up to it. I was exploring a little bit before we got in here. They have a story trail outside. If uh, you have a kid who's a froggy fan, that's the current book out there. So with us today, we have, for me, second time, for Lori, the first time, C.W. Goodyear, Charlie, uh, the author of President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier. Those of you who've um, stick, been sticking real close to us might have already caught this. I interviewed him at an in-person interview uh, a few weeks ago, but we have posted it, the recording, on the website if you go to, am I getting this right, Lori? If you go to Ted's story, it's posted there? Uh, yes, exactly. So two sides to the story.com. Uh, the first two is spelled out, the number two, and the second two is actually the numeral two. Um, two sides to the story.com. And the section titled Ted's story has a full recording of the first interview. So first of all, I'd just like to say, Charlie, welcome back to the show. Um, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, you know, it is really nice being back and talking to you guys. I got a chance to, of course, uh, talk to Ted and then speak briefly to Lori at the end of my last conversation with, uh, with y'all. A uh, funny thing about the CW thing, I've always gone by Charlie Goodyear hmm. in person, but I was advised as I was getting into this career that Charlie doesn't look good on a book cover. <laughs> really? So, so the, yes, yes. And I, I, I somewhat understand. So that was when my life as CW began. But it does create this strange uh, dichotomy where, you know, people who meet me first, they address me as CW, but I, I, I try to put a put a rest to that as quick as I can. Um, yeah, CW but, sounds more serious. It does. Yeah, yeah, no, it does, it does. It makes me sound also, uh, I think, a little bit older, which which doesn't hurt. <laughs> that you only feel like that because you're young. <laughs> wait till yeah, you're right. wait till you're in our spots, then you'll feel a little differently about that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that works. So I'm hoping that some of you listening to this were at the live event and chose to come back to hear more from Charlie. Uh, but again, if you're here listening to this one and you want to hear the first, go check that out. And uh, the two interviews kind of will be able to stand alone, although we'll probably touch on a few things that will show up in both, both places. Yeah, we discuss how to do this because we know that there are those of you listeners out there who have heard the first interview. You were either in the audience that day or you've listened to the show on our website. So we don't want to recap everything that went on that day. We're going to uh, refer you to the website to hear the full recording. And instead, we're going to focus the second interview on asking things that didn't get covered in the first one. So it's a unique opportunity. Um, Ted has done over 30 interviews with a variety of authors over the years. Um, this is the first time that he's done a second interview with the same author on the same book, especially in such short time frame. So it's, um, I think we both felt like this is such a great option because Ted had questions that he didn't get to cover the first time. And I did not participate in the first 
uh, interview except as an audience participant. So this is a great chance for both Ted and I to ask some additional questions of Charlie. Okay, so Charlie, Lori is a much tougher interviewer than I am. So get get yourself ready. All right, I'll prepare. All right, so the first question really is um, not about the book. And I'm going to give you just a little bit of backstory, Charlie, that we've interviewed several authors together for two sides to the story beyond the 30 that Ted has done on his own one of which was John Waters. Um, Don't know if you're familiar, but he's very well known in our area. Um, He's a Baltimore guy. He is a writer, a reader, a filmmaker, um, a comedian. Um, And so when we interviewed John Waters, we learned about all the facets of this man as a person. And uh, we right now only know about Charlie as, as a writer. So I was curious if you could share with us what you are like as as a reader. Oh, as a reader, uh, that, those that's actually that's a good question because I think the identity of authors uh, as writers and as readers there is a lot of uh, connective tissue between those people. Um, I I primarily try to read nonfiction, unsurprisingly, <laughs> and I'm a big fan of uh, vivid historical nonfiction, nonfiction where the style tries to put the reader in the times and in the room with their subjects. Uh, Some of my favorite books to read have directly inspired the way I try to write. Um, But I'd say, you know, I'm increasingly trying to branch out. I'm trying to get more into the fictional realm. I've started uh, dipping my toes into Hemingway for the first time in my life, ah. which is a little embarrassing to admit out loud. Um, but I try to read widely in biographical nonfiction, um, historical nonfiction, uh, and the the nearest I get to the modern day, I'd say, would be uh, 1980s slash 1990s business nonfiction. But that's about it. Okay. You know, it's interesting you're talking about you know, being primarily a nonfiction reader, but looking to expand some into fiction, a recurring theme of this podcast. Yes. Um, you know, Lori, when we started this, was overwhelmingly a nonfiction reader. Absolutely. Um, I was more diverse in, in my reading, uh, but uh, Lori has changed some as we've been going through this. So maybe we'll have to talk to you more about. Uh, where you might go with fiction sometime. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be welcome. Like you, branching out. So it's wonderful to be able to expand that. It's something we call shelf awareness. Uh, We borrowed it from a bookstore in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, Malaprop's bookstore. And we just thought that is so telling because, you know, if you're a lifelong reader, uh, that's going to expand. Your journey is going to take you in different directions. So it's, it's neat to see that that's happening for you as well. Yeah, I'm trying to resist settling into a groove. Mm. Um, I, I and I think a lot of people do. People gra- inevitably gravitate towards one genre or the other. I'm sure. trying to resist that a little bit because I, I, I sense I'm starting to hit bedrock in mm. my my original stuff. So I'm trying to branch out and learn what I can from um, different disciplines uh, in writing at the moment. But we'll see how that pans out. So actually, where we wanted to go next kind of follows pretty naturally from 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 this. Uh, you mentioned a book, um, Destiny of the Republic by Candace Millard, which was also mm-hmm. about James Garfield. If I remember right, she focused pretty much on the assassination. 
Yes, yes, she did. She she wrote a very compelling history of both the shooting of Garfield and then almost as importantly, uh, she really did a very good job describing the technological and medical developments and controversies at the time that influenced the way he received care. Uh, so it was a very, it was an excellent portrait of Garfield's brief administration and then the way he was uh, subject to these forces beyond his control and then the the spiral as I'd characterize it of his health because he of course he didn't die of his assess of his shooting he was he was killed by an infection and uh, Candace did a very good job of like characterizing and describing just this remarkable moment in American history this this bit of uh, presidential uh, almost Shakespearean drama that was unfolding in front of the entire country. And then also the fighting that was happen- happening behind the scenes among the president's caregivers. And it was an excellent resource for my own work. Um, and I didn't actually manage to talk to her briefly at the beginning of this process. She managed to do something that I did not manage to do, which is she actually got to hold uh, President Garfield's backbone because um, part of his vertebra uh, the, the vertebra that had a bullet hole in it was uh, somehow recovered from his body and then kept in an army museum dedicated to presidential assassination memorabilia. And uh, I believe Candace had an opportunity to actually see that firsthand and hold it, which which I which I'm very jealous of. And that's, right. that's <laughs> special. Yeah. So Millard wrote another book, and I didn't I didn't realize this until sometime after we talked, called River of Doubt, which I have read and enjoyed a lot. About uh, Teddy Roosevelt exploring a river in South America. Yeah, that's right. Um, which uh, is. Yeah, that was a fantastic book, uh, and it, it, it really uh, it, River of Doubt. It might as well have been called River of Disaster. <laughs> that expedition went down. I believe he nearly died, from what I understand. Yeah. Um, and, and then she's also recently produced another book, I believe, on the Nile. Um, but that, that's neither here nor there. Yep. So, other than Millard, uh, were there other books that you read to? get toward your book that particularly stand out for you as being important? Yeah, there is a book by Dr. Alan Peskin. He was kind of, as I described him in my acknowledgments, he was the, uh, he's the monolith of modern Garfield scholarship. He was the person who created the last authoritative Garfield biography before my own. And uh, that was just called Garfield, and it came out in 1974, I believe. But that was a fantastic uh, resource for me to find and then uh, draw upon and learn from. So that was very interesting. Another one, which was actually a much more general history of the age, was H. Wayne Morgan's book, From Hayes to McKinley, which was a series of profiles of all of the administrations of that period of American history from Rutherford Hayes to that of William McKinley. And Morgan's, not only was his research and his general uh, recollection of these times very comprehensive, he also wrote in a witty, light, but cutting style that I found very compelling. And he, he gave color to a period of our history that's all too often kind of lost in grayscale. And I found that a, a, a great inspiration to my own work as I was getting into the deeper weeds of it. 
And uh, let's see what else was quite useful. I, I'd say there was also um, Eric Foner's history of reconstruction, reconstruction America's unfinished revolution. That was a phenomenal work and an excellent guide as I was trying to navigate this again, very obscure period of our nation's past. You know, um, as you're talking, it occurs to me, uh, you're, you're fortunate to have written this at a time when expectations for how history is done has changed some to allow for more of these, um, I don't know if fun's the right kind of word, but uh, yeah, you know, to, to have, have a little bit more life to the book. Yeah, that's just kind of the way things go. I, you know, like um, writing, particularly historical writing, like everything, comes in trends. Uh, the, the status quo is never what's cool, if that makes any sense. There's always sure. like another generation that's coming up that's kind of responding to the norm and trying to lead things in a slightly... Uh, different way. So I, I'm confident that even if we're now entering kind of a period of historical writing that is a little bit, a little bit more uh, vivid, some would say florid, if they wanted to criticize it, uh, <laughs> what will we'll, we'll follow afterward will probably be a return to that stater type of writing, something that's a little bit uh, drier and uh, more, uh, I don't want to say incisive, but something that's a little bit more linear in many ways. Um, and, and there's precedent for that. These things come and go out of fashion. Uh, Carl Sandburg's biography of Abraham Lincoln stands out in my mind as an early example of very vivid, even poetic writing. Uh, but then the following generation went in a slightly different way, and now we're back here again. So, you know, it's like the tide. It comes in and out. Um, but it's, it's fun being part of that upswing if that I've, makes any sense. I've always intended to read Sandberg's biography and never never have. They reminded no, me yeah, I have it's, to It's very good. I believe Sandberg is actually the only person to ever win a Pulitzer Prize, both for nonfiction writing and uh, poetry. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So and I think he was also a consultant on a few movies, so he really did get around. In addition to the books that you've already mentioned as being part of your research, um, you indicated in the interview with Ted um, at Carol Lutheran Village that you got to see the diary, which was um, you know, amazing as, as far as research for the book. So you also shared uh, that it took you five years to write. And I, I can't even fathom, um, Ted and I both dabble in writing. We don't have a finished product yet, and it takes years, even when you're not doing as complex as this. So I'm yeah. wondering if you can share with us, with something so detailed, um, your writing process, your research um, surprises along the way. How did, how did you approach this, knowing the volume of, of what you were trying to understand and then put into written word in a way that others can enjoy? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say, well, it's like trying to um, eat a whale. Mm. You know, you're uh, one bite at a time. Exactly. Um, I could probably write a dissertation or something at least of that length about what just the way my I, I've found that my style of research and writing has evolved because it is an iterative process. You're right that it takes a long period of time, but also throughout that, once you have that publishing deal, because that's how nonfiction books are written, you get a deal up front and then you write the thing. Yeah. Uh, you, it's, it's almost this Darwinian 
process of finding out what works just from how you distill information and how you integrate it into your uh, writing. Uh, for the first two years of my work, I was hardly writing a thing. It was entirely this process of just osmosis, really, mm. of just reading as deeply as I could and working through all of the major archives on this person from uh, the Library of Congress here in D.C. to a series of archives in Ohio. And um, it wasn't it wasn't quite passive, but over this just, again, long periods of just writing and reading and uh, studying, writing from as in taking notes on what I was reading, um, you develop just an innate knowledge of your subject that when it comes time to write and it comes time to actually build out your outlines for your chapters, um, you're able to draw on things that have just basically become burned into your brain. And you, then you go find the source and you add it into your outline. So, um, I, and then the way I iterate on my writing, I build, uh, frames really. I research summaries, uh, bits of, prose that come to mind that I want to use. And it is this slow, patient thing. You're right that uh, it takes a long, long time uh, just to write anything that's worth publishing. Um, some of my mentors, for example, uh, they've only, they would commit themselves to putting 200 words on a page throughout a 12-hour working day. Wow. That's how slow and, and, and patient you need to be when it comes to the production of prose. And I should also say that five years, in the, at least in the biographical realm, is certainly not unheard of. There are people who would argue, actually, that 10 years is really the right amount of time to spend on something. Right, um, now, I didn't end up having to do that. I, I was tempted, but the real world kept calling mm. in the form of my publisher. Sure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it was just a... Um, it was an it's it's a monastic uh, uh, lifestyle, really, to be a biographer, um, and even to be a writer in general. There's something in particular about biography that just uh, gets people to go into the woods, uh, or, or so to speak, and just kind of rarely leave. Mm. Um, so it takes a lot of patience there, and I, I you know, I found it was a, a an interesting, fascinating journey. Uh, I'd also say it is uniquely something that uh, asks people who practice it to go from one end of the social spectrum to the other. Because um, again, you spend years in, in the library, in an office, just writing and writing and writing. And then when your work is produced, uh, you're asked, you're then hauled out and asked to speak about the subject to the people and, uh, like yourself. And so, uh, you know, you go from having to be this monastic cloistered writer to somebody who has to distill everything you've done into a you know 30 minute talk yeah and, and so it really does stretch your skill sets a little bit at various points yeah i never thought about that before but i i, I can see that it's a, a big change same yeah. um yeah you've yeah, got no. to really switch gears completely um not anti-social but so um solo and move that into now you've got to talk with the world about what I'll you've done. There are, there are some antisocial ones too. <laughs> <laughs> They're out there for sure. Yeah, think about what you're saying here about uh, the process. What do you think about writers like um, David McCullough and Nathaniel Philbrick and Doris Godwin who have put out, I, I don't even know how many books, but put out a lot of books. 
Yeah, they, well, they they they've had uh, they they allocate the appropriate amount of time, I think, to those things. Um, uh, what's true of um, uh, Goodwin, and, Kearns Goodwin, and uh, uh, McCullough in particular, uh, and rest in peace, McCullough, is that they have uh, they, they they dabble not only in biography but also in general history as well. Uh, you know, McCullough's first books were not about people; they were about. Uh, events and even buildings his, his book on the brooklyn bridge for example is a fantastic example of history as applied to a structure uh and so they've stretched the bounds a little bit of like what it means to be in those in the field and i think that they're remarkably productive uh there are also modern biographers who are writing not necessarily about historical subjects as much but who are also managing great feats of productivity i'd I'd point honestly at Walter Isaacson, who's now about to come up out with one of the most, uh, or, or I'd say probably the most cutting edge example of a biography of a modern figure, which is his biography of Elon Musk, which is, I believe, going to come out in mm. September or October. Um, and talk about a moving subject. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that thing's changing every day basically. And so uh, it, it makes you very interested in the process of biography and how it's still evolving, because uh, it is always something in motion. And, you know, Isaacson might be at the cutting edge of it in that way. Yeah, I, I don't remember what. I, I'm pretty sure I have read something of his. It makes me think of another person now. Um, do you know, I hope he's, how he says his name, James Glick? Oh, uh, yes, yes, of course. Hey, why don't you go to yours? Uh, book, we were going to ask you a little bit about um, your book tour, and I think you've sort of given us a, a taste of that in saying how you have to switch gears to, you know, sharing everything with the world when you've been in um, such a research mode. But um, in particular, simply because of our brief experience with you, Charlie, I don't know if you know this, but um, while... Ted was interviewing you. Our local newspaper was there. They took some photos. Um, we not only got some coverage for the event and for your book, but we, the picture of the three of us, ended up on the front page, top oh. fold, of our local newspaper. Oh, no, I had no idea. Yeah, <laughs> so um, you're, you're a bit of a good luck charm for our show. That um, That's a first for two sides. That's great. Um, yeah, and I don't know how many um, front of the page, top of the fold um, sort of publicity you've gotten so far, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit, um, maybe some of the highlights of, of your book tour so far. Where has it taken oh, yeah, you? yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. On the road, I mean, I, I don't want to sell short to you guys. You're, you're the only front page that I've been on uh, <laughs> with, so, so we're, we're going to rank you very high. Um, <laughs> But also touring through Ohio, which is something I did in mid-July, I got to just really have a lot of fantastic experiences with audiences who knew a remarkable amount about James Garfield already, uh, which is a generally a pretty rare thing. And I also got to run into quite a lot of Garfield descendants, and that was quite a highlight uh, because uh, having that tangible connection to your subject is always really valuable, and these are people who, of course, have a tremendous importance they place on your subject so i've never really encountered uh just a level of personal connection to an audience as much as i have in ohio meeting those garfield descendants uh in terms of the uh, you know other places i i've been to, I, a couple of weeks ago i was in new york 
and I was speaking in uh, Bryant Park, and that was quite a nice setting mm. to be uh, working within, you know, only a few blocks from Grand Central Station. Sure. And then, uh, let's see, some of the other highlights of the of the release, uh, you know, critics have said nice things, which I uh, very much appreciate, of course. It's nice to work on something for so long and see other people in the field say kind things. Um, now, at the same time, when you're in a creative field, and I'm sure you guys appreciate this as writers and podcasters yourself, you don't want to believe you're oppressed to a certain extent. Yeah, you know, <laughs> hearing only the, 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 the praise that your work is receiving is a good way to make sure that you stop improving as an artist. Mm. Um, so I, I've gotten nice coverage in the Wall Street Journal, uh, in the Washington Examiner, in the uh, New York Sun, but um, I... I the, the, the way this has gone, I, I would argue this has been a wonderful experience, just finally releasing this work, and people do seem to be enjoying it. Uh, I am also internalizing ways to improve the next work that I'll be moving on, uh, working on. So uh, that's always back of my mind. So uh, on Descendants, while we were at the interview here in Maryland, you had mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you had just spoken with a descendant in Carroll County, Maryland, not in Ohio. So it's interesting how far that stretches. Um, yeah, they, they, there's only one group of Garfields, is what I've learned. Uh, there's like hmm. you can meet them everywhere. Interesting. But they're all from the same family. Okay, um, you mentioned a couple places where you've gotten good reviews. Uh, you were recently in the Washington Post. I don't know if you caught that one. No, that, I did not. That's amazing. Uh, that was just in the last week or so oh, wow. and also on the Barnes and Noble website there was one day said something like uh, so many books to pick from but we only can only talk about six but your book was one of the six yeah wow that's yeah that's right I, I do remember that that was nice to see and interestingly enough you know they a lot of actually reviewers have said this um, they, they describe it as being uh, having the, the the writing style of a novel, uh, which is interesting given as I as we discussed at the top of the hour, uh, I don't read very many novels, mm -hmm. so that was nice to see. Well, maybe there's something else in your future. There then. we go. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. That you know, it's funny saying that. Um, you know, when I was reading the book. You know, definitely had the feeling of reading a, a story. I mean, I, I knew the end, but I still was reading, okay, what happens next? What happens next? Yes, yes. It's, um, you know, it, it, what struck me about, uh, you know, I found James Garfield not because I was necessarily uh, drawn to him as a subject, but as I, as I dug into this person that I found in my research, the more compelling the underlying life was. And uh, as I think I've said before, maybe in our earlier conversation, he was, he, he led perhaps the most compelling personal rise to political power. Uh, I'd argue certainly in 19th century American history, but maybe in American history overall. It was just an incredibly rich life. And um, to be honest, from a biography perspective, I'm kind of spoiled for um, my next subject. I don't know who I can 
uh, Knicks to wander into who will offer me as much rich material to draw off of. But, you know, he was uh, born into a log cabin. He was a decorated soldier. He was this incredible intellect and this just remarkably experienced statesman. And then uh, his life ends tragically and spectacularly. There was just so much packed within there to draw out, and I felt uh, very spoiled and very lucky to have him as a subject. Yeah, and we did talk about this some in the first interview. He was also a preacher. He ran a school. Uh, was it? Yes. Very, very in Congress. Was very young, being elected and and getting on certain committees. Yeah, right. I think I I told you the first time we talked that you know. Um, if you had asked me what I knew about Garfield, it would have been president sometimes after the Civil War. He had a beard and he was assassinated. Uh, yes. But I, I read this and you know, everything you're saying was it was hitting me the, the same way. It's like, wow, how did I not know about this guy? Yeah, it's interesting. And, and by the way, that's true for all of those uh, presidents of that period. Thomas Wolfe referred to, you know, that stretch of presidents as the lost presidents, which is, you know, ironic. They put all this effort into cultivating these beards and they end up being indistinguishable from each other. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it, there's more attention going to that generation of our leaders now. There have been a series of good recent biographies of those guys. Uh, and and uh, so maybe this is a generational shift. I'm not sure. But um, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't recommend Gilded Age reading as a timely uh, subject to dive into for readers at home. It's funny you say that. That's actually where I was going to go with you next, Charlie, is that you made a comment um, during your interview with Ted the first time. Um, and I, I think he, you, it was about that there's another book in here beyond the book you wrote, that it was enough research that, you know, there could be a next. And, and Ted was questioning, is it you? And you said, no, no, I think I'm, I'm done with the Gilded Age. So yes, yes, I am. I'm done. <laughs> sort of a, a two-part question because you already touched just a little bit on the next project. So if it's not the Gilded Age, we're curious as to what is next for you. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm interested in um, uh, all biographers end up falling into a certain genre, like a subgenre of biography. They find out some theme or some uh, general qualifier in their subject that ends up binding all of their different subjects together. And for example, uh, Walter Isaacson, he's written about uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Henry Kissinger, uh, Jennifer Doudna, uh, and now Elon Musk. His genre are innovators, people who are disrupting, Hmm. uh, aggressive disruptors of a field. Uh, For me, I have decided that I'm very interested in um, people who make American government work Hmm. and i'm interested in people who are practical uh uh, statesmen in difficult eras and i'm fascinated not just in the people who make government work but also what they mean when they think of government working because that's often a very different thing for different people sure Um, a, a vision of what our institutions are supposed to uh do and act like and what mandate they're supposed to be acting on so uh, Garfield was that figure in Reconstruction and the Gilded Age. He was this great pragmatist of that time, and he was somebody who really danced between the partisan raindrops. Uh, I have found somebody of that 
archetype in the 20th century who I'd now like to write about next. And um, the publisher I can share has asked for another book, which is very nice. Um, Awesome. And so now it's just a question. And I told them about this person. And they go, that sounds good. When can we see a proposal? And so now I need to work on that. Um, You know, no rest for the weary. (laughs) Right. Right into Um, the next one. (laughs) So that's what I'm going to try to focus on. Because this is, uh, unfortunately, kind of an evergreen issue. Yes. Uh, and I'd argue a very timely one these days. Uh, and it's a very complicated field to, mm. to dive into because visions for how our republic is supposed to govern itself and its people. You know, I think you could swing a cat uh, and <laughs> in, a, in, in like a supermarket and you would hit five different people who have different visions for how our government is supposed to function and govern its citizens. Um and everybody says the same thing, of course, these days, which is why can't our people in Washington just do the common sense thing and sort out their differences? That's not as easy as you think. And uh, I'm very interested in the people who try to do that and the uh, the variety in which that can be done. So that's my general direction that I see myself heading on. I love hearing that. I, I have to tell you, you know, we've had conversations with several authors. One that stands out for me, this is a fiction writer, um, Patty Callahan McHenry. Um, certainly, if you're trying to dive deeper into other areas, I would uh, recommend her. She is a wonderful storyteller. But she was explaining to us sort of like the writing domino that happens. One book led to the next book to the next book in one way or another. And I, I hear something similar from you in that as, as a younger person um, to Patty, no offense to Patty, but that you've already figured out what you feel is your your niche, your passion, your your calling in writing. So we're very well, interested. That's, that, well, that's what I think, but I've been yeah. wrong before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also it's one of those natural progressions. And I think this sure. is true of kind of any field where somebody finds you know what they're really motivated by. Uh, in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. In the moment, you're, you're going off of what feels like uh, instinct when sure, it comes to looking ahead and what might come next. So um, th- that, that's the current direction. We'll see if the process changes that calculus. But right now, that seems to be the right move to go in. You know, some of the stuff you're saying about government and how do you get things to work and what do people want uh, really hits home for me. Uh, Lori and I both work in local government uh, we are not making a living doing this, so we still have jobs. Yes, this is just for fun. But for 30 years, uh, what I've done is work in uh, local government budgeting. So I, I, I come up all the time against what do people want? And that is a very, very difficult question to answer because people have all kinds of different ideas and about how do, you, how do you make it happen? Once you've decided what you're gonna do, how do you make it happen? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, different, uh, uh, different, different visions for uh, what ideals to practice in government. Is it better to be an ideological Puritan or, uh, you know, it, what is the complexity of being somebody who is uh, open-minded in our systems of government? Like, uh, there's just a huge spectrum of uh, ways to go about solving public policy problems. And sorry, I'm rambling on, but I'm, I'm glad that that's striking a chord with you. No, I, I didn't 
anticipate going here, but uh, all very interesting. Yeah, I'm glad it came up. Yeah, some of the best questions or conversations come from not off the script, just in where our conversations lead us. Going back to that. Right. So um, while Ted is getting ready for another book-related question, I have, I have one for you that just hit me as an audience participant. Is uh, One moment, Ted said, Charlie, hold up your book. I want to have the audience see. And what they saw was that you had tabs all over your book, as, as did Ted. And Ted made the joke that, you know, I have more tabs than Charlie does. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's sort of funny to hear two parts of that. One is that you said you were thinning yours out in the car before the interview. And I even was. that you were thinning it out. I, I can tell you Ted's process when he interviews an author and, and he reads it three times to come up with the questions and the tabs are to sort of plan what questions because there are a thousand and how do you narrow that down to the 20 that you have time for in an hour. So I know why he has tabs. So tell me if you would why you had tabs and and why were you thinning? Yeah, well, it's um, it, it, so I'll start by just contextualizing for readers. It is admittedly a long book, not including notes. It is approaching 500 pages. And with a life like Garfield's and with all of the different uh, events and themes of his uh, leadership, um, there are just a million different anecdotes and examples and compelling quotes to draw upon mm-hmm. that you can make his appeal and his. Uh, just interesting life relevant for readers because that's really the challenge with yes. uh, this this type of work is how do you make a, a, you know uh, a, a deep life uh, and its appeal apparent to readers within the span of a few minutes and the, 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 the answer is to just find examples and quotes that really distill all of that appeal and so when I'm going through my book, I have a million different tabs that are color-coded for different themes of Garfield's yeah. life and examples and anecdotes and uh, lines of his that really uh, draw that out in a compelling way. Um, you also, But, but I, I ended up having to thin them out because, you know, you need to have – you can only give a few mm. in a limited amount of time to an audience. Sure. So what you were witnessing was my culling of my – I was killing my darlings. <laughs> I'm glad Lori asked that. Um, that you know, the idea that you color coded for different types of themes in, in, in the book is very interesting to me. I, I don't think it would have occurred to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was my attempt, and uh, that, that's also a lesson from my earlier research as well. Color coding different things in different sources to type into my master research documents. Yeah, makes makes sense. So you spent five years writing it. You got it published. Now you've been out in the world talking to people about it. Do you look back at the book now and say, I wish I had done that differently, or I wish I had done something I didn't do? Absolutely, yes. And that's true. This is true, I think, of any creative process. Um, There are, you know, whenever you're, whenever you're the creator, and then the final work is out there and people are seeing it, they are seeing it for the first time, and they're seeing it in the only format they'll ever see it in. But the creator is looking at what they've already worked on, and it's not new to them. They know it like 
you know, the back of their hand to understate things. And the creator is not only seeing what eventually went out into the world, they're also seeing what else could have been. And that makes it very hard. In my experience, everybody's different. But in my experience, that makes it very hard to be ultimately, what I'd say is happy with the final work. You can be content, but you might not necessarily be thrilled with it. And there are things that I also I already look at and I'm like, mm, I wish I'd done that a little bit uh, differently. Uh, I see uh, stories that I could have expanded on. I see uh, different ways of phrasing things that I wish I would, had thrown in there. Mm. Uh, for example, there's a phrase that I've learned to use a lot on the book tour, and it only came to me uh, before publication, but after I submitted the final manuscript to describe Garfield's personality and politics. And I described it to this friend of mine as a pathologically reasonable person. And he was like, that's a fantastic line. I, you, you nailed it. And then I thought to myself, oh, I wish I'd put that in the book. Hmm. <laughs> I wish that had come to me three months earlier. But that's not how it works, unfortunately. <laughs> so um, it's uh, so, so yes, there's inevitably, you know, a little bit of flagellation that happens afterwards. But that's uh, that, that's an inescapable part of this this life in many ways. So um, uh, that, that's part of the burden authors and podcasters like yourself sometimes have to carry is you know asking yourself ah what else could i have done different you know, i always go back and listen to the episodes and i could write pages and pages on <laughs> why did i say that why didn't i say that uh so we it's funny how that works. we've not talked as much in this interview as we did in the first about garfield but there was one thing he said that you quoted in the book that I, I thought really went deeply into who he was. And this is when he was, he was in the army. Uh, he, he, he had a command and he was chasing somebody. I think this was through Kentucky, if I'm remembering right. And he said, I dare hardly hope that I shall capture a whole army. And just the idea that he said that and said it the way he did, I, I think says so much about him yeah yeah he uh, and also he he him saying that uh proves that he was hoping to capture an entire army he, he was really tempting fate there yeah his um he was not afraid to dream especially early in his life and uh i, I think his certainly for the young garfield he the amount of initiative and ambition that he showed in trying circumstances that that really defined him and that was true of his uh his youth when he was you know this energetic young student and it was true of his army career where he was trying very hard to both win what he thought to be a, a righteous conflict but also you know win glory for himself and he ended up doing both of those things so another thing that came up um, briefly during the interview, and it just felt like there was a lot more to say, and in the book it's it's talked about several places, is the relationship that he had with, with other presidents. And, and the list is, is pretty long. Um, Lincoln, Johnson, Grant, Hayes, Arthur, Harrison, there's so many different pieces there, and we could spend the next three hours probably hearing you talk about that. But can you, for listeners that are interested, maybe haven't gotten into the book far enough yet, uh, give some, some um, expert 
information on, on those relationships, yes. what you yes. found particularly interesting. Garfield was very well connected to, you know, all of the presidents, pretty much of his adult life. Uh, Lincoln was somebody who, Lincoln was the person who told Garfield to uh, ultimately decide to leave the army and go to Congress. Garfield had, you know, won election to the House, but he had also become this pretty, uh, you know, impressive general in the Civil War. And he wanted to continue as both, if at all possible. Lincoln told him, no, I need I need more Republicans in the House than I do out there in the field right now. Um, Johnson, on the other hand, and by the way, Garfield and Lincoln had a very complicated relationship uh, because Garfield was, of course, a radical Republican. So he was actually kind of an kind of a prodder of the bear. He was somebody who was more extreme on social and racial policies than Lincoln was, and he couldn't understand why Lincoln was not being more aggressive in one fighting the war, but two. Um, doing something for uh, black Americans and slaves. Uh, Johnson, Garfield was trying very hard to mend the breach between Johnson and the radical Republicans after the Civil War, and that ended up being naive. It was actually a good demonstration of Garfield's conciliatory political nature starting to emerge. Uh, Grant and Garfield uh, had an extremely complicated relationship. They both did favors for one another, but they were never entirely sure of one another's motivations, and they never really had confidence in each other's leadership. That was especially true of Garfield's presidential administration, uh, by the way. And um, not only that, their personalities were radically different. Garfield was this very famous slash infamous backslapper, buddy-buddy type of social presence in Washington. Grant couldn't muster any warmth with anybody uh somewhat famously there's this encounter that i write about in the book uh where garfield goes to a dinner with grant and he's seated right next to the president and president grant looks over and explains to garfield how uh, he doesn't like dogs and he avoids foods that most people like and then he goes on to say uh you know congressman garfield uh uh, do you think that animals are insane or could become insane? <laughs> like, and Garfield goes home and writes in his diary, had a series of you know conversations with the president that revealed something about his character, mm. which is a sneaky way of saying this guy's a this guy's a weirdo. <laughs> uh, Hayes and uh, Garfield got along about as well as two politicians from the same state of the same party moving up the national ranks at the same time who were president right after each other could be. And that's a very weighted statement. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the aftermath, I closed the book uh, with the commemoration of uh, Garfield's tomb in Lakeview Cemetery just outside of Cleveland. And the, the first speaker... Uh, uh, that I profile is Rutherford Hayes, former president, who stands up and gives a speech. And then the next speaker is, uh, I, is that I write of is Benjamin Harrison, who is the current president at the time of this dedication. And Harrison speaks, stands up and gives a speech. And then the audience at this ceremony then clamors for somebody who's also attending to also talk. And then finally, this person yields to the crowd, stands up and speaks, and it's William McKinley, who, and so as I write in the book, it's, Republican presidents, past, present, and future, mm. standing up to reflect on one of their own. 
Yes. So he was. A, so one of the things that was just very compelling about Garfield for me, he was an incredibly well connected person of his time, who everybody seems to have nevertheless forgotten about. Mm. And it offered a nice opportunity to comment on a wide swath of presidential administrations without having to worry about going too deep into any of them. So that made him quite fun to uh, write about. Now, I don't think you're going to catch any recent president who knows anything about James Garfield. However, uh, when President Biden was talking at Memorial Day this year, he gave his speech in Arlington Cemetery where he quoted in his opening paragraph a speech given at the first National Dedication Day in Arlington Cemetery that was given by James Garfield. So Biden uh-huh. did quote James Garfield somewhat recently. Um, but that's about as, as, as recent as you'll find a presidential connection between you know, modern presidents and my subject. And you may be of a limited number of people that would know that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you'd think so. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in the book, we talked about this in the first interview, uh, every chapter opens with a quote from Shakespeare which you took from Garfield's diaries. So clearly he was very um, uh, knowledgeable about Shakespeare. And there were other mentions, Dickens comes up, Twain comes up, and you don't really pursue this any, but I'm guessing he must've been pretty widely read. Oh, he was incredibly well read. I think he might've been the most intellectual person to ever be president. and actually, it's it's on pretty ready display. If one of you was to go to his uh, home, which is now a National Historic Site in Menor, Ohio, you would see his literary collection, and it's incredibly deep. Um, his he was a, a very widely read president, and that that permeated his rhetoric and his writing and his interactions, even with people of his time. Um, and it's a rare thing, I think to find an American statesman who not only knows Shakespeare, but who can apply it to their day-to-day life, as Garfield did during his diary for the, in his diary for the year 1878. Okay. Um, not a big topic, but kind of interesting. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's son was present at the assassination of Garfield. You know, it's one of those things that kind of hits you like, uh, you know, what are the chances? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's interesting. Uh, his, you know, as I was kind of mentioning when you asked about Candace Millard earlier, um, there is just a lot of history that's, and just national events and just uh, developments of the nation that all coincided during the Garfield presidency. And one of them, you know, one of those strands of, history that can that you can pluck on is that his secretary of war was robert todd lincoln and garfield chose robert todd lincoln in part because he needed again to bind together this this fracturing republican party this this republican party that was becoming overridden by internal divisions and robert todd lincoln uh happened to be in the train station uh, at the moment of Garfield's shooting in downtown D.C. And so he watched, he, he was about 40 feet away, and he watched Garfield be shot. And as Secretary of War, he was in charge of securing the site. He had to, he summoned soldiers to, uh, you know, to the site. He uh, ended up uh, 
not necessarily directing care, but he was by the president's side as the first doctors arrived. And then once the scene calmed down, Robert Todd Lincoln then went outside and he gave this uh, quote to a journalist. He said, "How he asked, how many hours of suffering have I seen in this town? Which is a very, you know, sad line when you know Robert Todd's background. Uh, I'll also say he was also um, present uh, at the, not, not, not the exact scene, but he was present at the site of William McKinley shooting as well. Oh, wow. uh, so, so he was snake bit <laughs> and, and there's the, there's this um, line he supposedly gave after, you know, essentially attending his third presidential assassination, all of them to that point in the nation's history. He, he said that he, he's going to not meet a president ever again for the rest of his life. Cause as he put it, events have a certain uh, fatal uh, trend when I do. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, no, and, but he was a very interesting man in his own right. Uh, you, uh, Robert Todd Lincoln was not only secretary of war, he also became uh, an ambassador to the UK. And uh, he, you know, as the last surviving son of Abraham Lincoln, there's just a lot of, uh, he, he, he's remembered as this very tragic but mysteriously compelling figure of that time as well. So, Charlie, I know we're coming up on an hour. I don't want to hold you too long, but um, you did such a wonderful job sort of on the summation of the relationship with the other presidents. And I'm going to refer back to something you said a few minutes ago on thinning your book and killing your darlings because there's just not enough time to say it all. So just an opportunity, um, if you'd like, if uh, you've been asked a lot of questions by a lot of people and you've talked to us twice, um, what would you like to share with with our audience, the folks that are listening to the show um, about the book, about your work that that we haven't asked you? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I'd say um, for so. I'll just say in, in brief, um, a lot of people at the, throughout this process, and even on the, on, the, on the book tour as well, have asked me the same, uh, the, the basic question of why James Garfield? Mm. And for somebody who has uh, such, it seems, limited appeal and limited applicability to modern life, I'd say Garfield is actually incredibly he, he has an incredibly timely life story um, in the events of his life and what he witnessed and all of and the rhetoric he used and the meditations that he had on the, the soul of the country. I'd argue that his life is a very good demonstration that a lot of the things that we call unprecedented today are not really that unprecedented. That the events, the political divisions, the rhetoric, and the soul-searching that's going on about America, a lot of that actually has, in some way, shape, or form, happened before. And Garfield's a very good look at that. And I'd say that's also that's, that's both reassuring, in a certain sense, and then not reassuring, mm-hmm. because for, for the same reason. Here we uh, still because, are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if there is precedent, you know, that, that's both reason to take heart and also to be concerned. Yes. Uh, second, I'd say he's a very good look at, uh, as, as I've kind of mentioned before, he's a very good look at what it looks like when a pathologically reasonable person is in power in Washington. Somebody who is 
just trying to be friendly and nice and easygoing and practical when it comes to solving the nation's issues and managing partisan politics. Uh, and he's a demonstration of that type of politics in, in, in its, its usefulness and its limitations mm. in solving the nation's issues. You know, on the similarities between his time and ours, and uh, you and I did talk about that some at, at our interview. Uh, if I was going to pick one reason for somebody to read this book, and there's lots of reasons to read this book, but if I was going to pick one thing, that might be what I would tell people is, you know, read this to see yes. just how much was going on back then that we're experiencing in some similar way now. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that's it, it's a very good demonstration of that theme and those uh, that uh, that, that, that continued applicability of history to our own times. There are other chapters of our history where that's also true, but with Garfield, it is particularly and very surprisingly true. So uh, I'm glad that that came across. So uh, we will, at that, let you get back to other things, other projects. Uh, you gave us just enough on what's to come to have us intrigued, so we will be paying attention to... You've got a proposal yes, right <laughs> That we understand, no problem. Uh, don't, need, under, don't need to push that further. Right. We'll just, we'll pay attention to what, what's to come for you. Um, we appreciate very much the opportunity to talk with you, not just once, but twice, also to uh, you know have your face your face grace the cover of the paper with us and and help us promote our show but also to help promote your amazing book so um, thank you very much for taking the time oh thank you all both it's it's always a pleasure so um, thanks you guys and if you want to have a third right just drop me a line absolutely <laughs> we will be talking to you at some point for sure as as you continue on your on your journey great okay well thank you guys for having me on thank you. We didn't 